0: I'm Jim Kuhn. I'm a member of Carpenters and Joiners of America, Local 314. This week, we find out the latest... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people in the labor movement, in this area and surrounding communities. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WART possible.
1: Hi. I'm Ann Habel, a retired member of AFSCME Local 171. This week, we found out, out the latest on the Minneapolis public school strike. We examined the challenges facing rural schools, learn more about contract negotiations at Collectivo, discuss a night shift walkout by Amazon employees, share the COVID report, and much more. Special thanks to all our volunteers who gave generously in our campaign. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio.
0: Organized Labor is demanding that Collectivo Coffee Management negotiate a first contract with its workers. And the movement has reached Madison. Labor Radio has more.
2: Yesterday, on Thursday morning, the three Colectivo coffee locations in Madison got visits at 9, 10, and 11 a.m. from supporters of labor. Colectivo workers voted to become members of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or the IBEW. But so far, Colectivo management has refused to negotiate a contract. And Colectivo workers in Madison were informed of the fight and shown that organized labor and supporters had their back. Also, customers of the shops were directed to a website where they could sign a petition in support of the workers fighting for a contract. Alex Brower, executive director of the Wisconsin Alliance for Retired Americans and organizer of the actions, explained what is going on.
3: Across the state, and in in Illinois as well, the Wisconsin Alliance, in partnership with labor allies and supporting community, we are doing a week of action where we are talking to workers at every single collectivo across the company-wide. So that's 20 stores in the Milwaukee area, Madison area here, and then also the Chicago areas. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we visited every single store in the Metro Milwaukee area. We wanted to alert the workers to the fact that there is a union drive going on because of the company's stalling tactics, there's been t- almost 100% turnover at some stores. So we are interested in reaching every single worker, making them aware of the organizing committee and making sure that they get in contact with it if they want to.
2: Collette has taken action against union organizers. So showing support for workers is important, Brower explains. Workers Organizing Committee sent a letter to Collectivo asking for
3: voluntary recognition. And of those workers who signed that original letter, almost all of them have been unjustly terminated by the company at this point. Only a few of them remain. And so part of the unfair labor practices charges that the IBW has filed has been to reinstate these workers.
2: An NLRB decision in this case may come at any time. Meanwhile, the action continued with supporters including members of Ask Me Workers at UW, the UW Teaching Assistance Association, or the TAA, postal workers, and labor retirees. The State Street Colectivo was suddenly packed with members of the building trades who were holding a conference nearby and just happened to want to stop into Colectivo for some coffee and solidarity. Here's Jack Weitzel, executive director of the South Central Wisconsin Building Trades Council, in the coffee shop
4: yes we were invited by our labor federation and we happen to have our building trades conference today so uh, i organized a bunch of people to come down here from all the building trades unions one of our fellow ibw locals yeah, is organizing the collectivo work coffee workers so it's nice to come
5: uh,
6: show solidarity
2: gretchen lau vice president of Asme retirees chapter 52 explains why collectivo management is refusing to cooperate
5: they're trying to break the union if they don't negotiate with the union to get the first contract they stall, install it until the workers get unhappy and then they can certify in their strong union. So there's an underlying reason why they don't negotiate.
2: Greg Jones, president of the NAACP of Dane County, showed up at the Monroe Street Colectivo, bought some coffee, and here explains why his organization supports this effort. We have to, as a community, come together to promote the equal rights of all of our citizens. Labor rights are civil rights. We must uphold those rights, fight for those rights, declare those rights, and more importantly, When we do achieve them, maintain them. Kevin Gunlock, president of the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUTTLE, was one of the activists handing out flyers and talking to workers and customers, and here explains what he witnessed.
7: Well, they all were positive, very positive. The customers that we talked to, uh, they didn't know about it first, and they were very supportive. There didn't need to be a lot of conversation there. As soon as we told them that these workers had voted yes to be in a union a year ago, and still to this day, ownership has not sat down with them, one, they, they were probably alarmed as customers, and two, they were supportive of the workers. So that was good to see.
2: Good luck continues.
7: For the worker side, that was very positive as well. I went up to one person who I thought was a customer. Was a worker on a short break, I think. They said, yeah, give me uh, whatever handout we, we were giving out to the workers. And didn't have to explain too much there either because that worker knew what was going on. And they took it and said, thank you. The thing that I think that was important for them to hear was that we had their back, labor, all of labor, retirees, union members, customers, our allies, like the NAACP who showed up today, that we have their back and we support them and we will be there alongside them until management and ownership agrees to sit down with these workers and they can get their first contract.
2: That was, that was Kevin Goodluck of Scuffle. The customer petition is on actionnetwork.org and is called Support the Workers at Colectivo. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Rural school districts throughout Wisconsin face a funding
1: crisis. Labor Radio spoke with Dan Beck, Wisconsin Education Association Council Region 1 Director, to get some insights on the problem and find out what could be done.
8: Last night, Cameron, a small school from Cameron, Wisconsin, played at the Milwaukee Academy of Arts and Science at the WIAA Men's Basketball Tournament. Cameron won a big triumph for a very small school in northern Wisconsin by simply being here at the call center. That their school survives at all is a testament to the challenges the community overcomes to keep a rural school open. Labor Radio spoke with Dan Beck of the Wisconsin Education Association Council who outlined the biggest challenges facing rural schools in Wisconsin.
9: Well, you have a state funding formula that needs to be fixed, updated, made to fit the modern world. Along with that, you have voucher spending, uh, which has drained hundreds of millions of dollars out. The system as it exists relies heavily on local property taxes. That system looks only at the value of property and not necessarily at the uh, people who actually live in the district and whose children go to school, the lake home effect.
8: Without any real connections to the local schools, this group opposes any tax increases. We ask what factors have contributed to producing such a non-functional system.
9: Part of demographics, like everything in rural America, people have slowly been draining away, leaving and not returning. The number of students in those schools go down. The formula, again, creates less funding for them because it's done on a per-student basis, a lot of the state aid. You have all of those things, lack of transportation, huge bus routes, all those kind of things that are more expensive when you have to divide the cost amongst fewer and fewer people.
8: The elimination of collective bargaining made a difficult situation even worse. Beck continues. Then
9: there's the collective bargaining piece. When collective bargaining was eliminated, by Act 10 now going on 11 years ago, a lot of the things that allowed rural schools and small schools to remain competitive when it came to attracting and staffing and retaining people and just being able to uh, get the funding in the first place, a lot of those things were eliminated. And uh, like so many young people who grow up there, teachers are also, and staff are, are leaving leaving the rural areas and going where the money is. And that Generally means urban areas.
8: Beck addressed the question what needs to be done to respond to the challenges? Bringing the teachers' voices into the discussion is paramount.
9: But without the collective bargaining, the voice that the professionals who are the frontline workers, people on the ground actually doing the work, have very little say in what that work is or what it looks like or how it proceeds. And about that, you lose, you lose what amounts to the, uh, the motivation.
8: Aside from the issue of voice, Beck pointed to two other impediments to being able to address the issues that rural schools face. Noting that over 40 years, Americans have been fed a constant anti-tax and anti-government narrative starting with President Reagan, Beck added,
9: And then you get gerrymandering, even though that's not necessarily popular in an area. People want to see their schools well-funded and their kids have all the opportunities that others have but with gerrymandered district doing things allowing vouchers to spread capping state aid to schools especially those that really need it uh, those kind of things you can vote uh, to do those sorts of things and not pay a penalty Uh, when districts are so gerrymandered you know that almost no matter what you do you don't stand a chance of losing
8: that was dan beck Regional Director of Region 1 of WEAC, discussing the challenges that rural schools face. I am Frank Spack from Madison Labor Radio.
0: Next, we'll hear the data on the women in Wisconsin's workforce from a webinar celebrating Women's History Month.
6: Women-leading state agencies and Governor Tony Evers' administration celebrated working women statewide on Tuesday during an hour-long webinar to mark International Women's Day on March 8th and March as Women's History Month. Panelists highlighted the crucial role women play in Wisconsin's growing economy as well as state agency efforts to reduce employment barriers and advance all workers. Among the key statistics shared by the Department of Workforce Development during the webinar, Wisconsin women nearly equal men in the workforce, accounting for 47% of the workforce last year, exceed the national labor force participation rate by five to seven percentage points on average. In 2020, Wisconsin women who were full-time wage and salary workers had median usual weekly earnings of $885 or 86.5% of the median usual weekly earnings of their male counterparts. This has increased from 82.4% in 2019, according to U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data. While Wisconsin's overall wage rate is slightly lower than the national average, state women appear about 4.2 percentage points closer to achieving pay parity than the national average. According to the U.S. Census Bureau's Pulse survey, during the four weeks ending February 7th, more than 36,000 Wisconsin women cut their hours, and more than 5,500 quit their jobs due to lack of childcare. care. Don Krim, Secretary of the Department of Safety and Professional Services, emphasized the need to address workforce issues facing women of color. Quote, we need to acknowledge how all of the iniquities women face and all of the iniquities Black people face are exponentially greater for Black women, Krim said. Quote, we have a long way to go, but we are on the right path. I'm Sean Hagerup reporting for Madison Labor Radio.
1: Two public school teachers update us on the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Educational Support Professionals strike.
4: I'm Tatiana Grogan. I am a third grade teacher and the equity lead at Nellie Stone Johnson in Minneapolis Public School District.
10: My name is Alan Savola. I am an ELL teacher with Minneapolis Public Schools. I've been teaching English language learners for 21 years in the district, and I'm also a union steward at Nellie Stone Johnson.
4: Nellie Stone Johnson Elementary School is on the north side of Minneapolis. It is a predominantly Black school. I would say about 80% African American and about 20% Latin or Hispanic. 96% are on free and reduced lunch. More than two-thirds of the school utilizes our after-school program.
1: It is completely free. All of our students receive breakfast for free. Why are Minneapolis public school educators going on strike right now?
10: Really, we've gone 20 years with minimal teacher salary increases. We had four years where we were at a wage freeze, where teachers sacrificed any wage increase or salary increase so that we could stave off programs being cut staff being cut. There are a lot of things that the community needs and teachers need as far as safe and stable schools and the district. They're not serving them and it's getting worse and the conditions have been getting worse. We've been losing ESPs or educational support professionals and the class sizes have been going up. The number of counselors is getting smaller and smaller for the increasing number of kids. And I think we just felt we had to do something. It just came to a head with having a superintendent that's not responsive and having a school board that is not responsive or even willing to sit down to negotiate with the teachers.
4: I really appreciate what the union has done for us in the year leading up to the strike and trying to avoid it also.
1: What's happened since last week? Has any headway been made on the negotiations?
10: There has been some headway, but it's really been tough going. Prior to the strike, teachers and ESPs were told there was no money, so there would be a wage freeze. Then after a few days of striking, it was 1% increase. Then it was 1.75 after a few more days. Over the weekend, they came back with a 2% raise. So there is progress being made, but it's really, really slow. We had one of our school board members quit.
4: I actually learned of two more today. The district just released an email about it now. Um, Prior to the strike, one of the associate superintendents left Minneapolis Public Schools. Today, it was announced that the senior vice president of human resources has also resigned.
10: I think the pressure is increasing to get teachers back to work and give the teachers and the ESPs what they want, or at least part of what they want or what they need.
1: What would a good agreement look like to you? Our
10: ESPs, a good agreement would be a living wage for them, recruitment and retaining educators of color.
4: Tapping the class sizes, recruitment mental health supports for staff and students. I think that's another part that might be missing sometimes is it's not just for the students, it's for us as well.
1: Um, teaching is a hard and sometimes isolating job. The Minneapolis Teachers Support Fund can be found at mft59.org slash strike fund. That was Minneapolis public school teachers Tatiana Grogan and Alan Subola. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio.
0: Here's an important announcement from the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign.
11: The Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign is holding a Dane County outreach day from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, March 19th at the Catholic Multicultural Center, 1862 Bell Street, Madison. Outreach includes flyer distribution, canvassing and sharing information about the Poor People's Campaign and the March 28th Mobilization Tour Stop in Madison. Gather at the Catholic Multicultural Center at 10 a.m. tomorrow to receive a brief training for outreach. Groups can post and hand out flyers about the March 28th mobilization tour event or go door-to-door in designated neighborhoods to talk about the Poor People's Campaign and engage one-on-one. Return to the Catholic Multicultural Center after canvassing for pizza from Ian's. Details for the mobilization tour have changed. That event is starting at 4.30 on Monday, March 28, 2022, at the First United Methodist Church 203 Wisconsin Avenue in Madison. Host contact information is available at wisconsin at poorpeoplescampaign.org. The Poor People's Campaign is a national call for moral revival. It seeks to unite poor and low-income, directly impacted people, faith leaders, and moral advocates for the mobilization tour in person and online on Monday, March 28th. The march will begin at 4.30 p.m. Central Time with a mass assembly at 6 p.m. Rev. Dr. Liz Theo-Harris is the featured speaker. The march will promote the priorities and demands of poor and low-wealth Wisconsinites and neighbors. The mobilization tour will make at least 10 stops nationwide to do more mobilize, organize, register, and educate people for a movement that votes as they move toward the low-wage Workers' Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls on June 18, 2022. They want to do more to address systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the denial of health care, militarism, and the war economy and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. The Outreach Day is 10 a.m. tomorrow, March 19th, at the Catholic Multicultural Center. I'm Keith Stephan reporting for Labor Radio.
5: Sure.
1: And now, here's our statistic of the week
8: Equal Pay Day targets the gap between men and women's wages. It is the day in 2022 that women would have to work to be paid as much as men in 2021. Sound confusing? Women were paid 22.1% less than men on average, taking into account race, ethnicity, education, age, and geographic division. In other words, women would have to work 22% more time to be paid as much as men, and that 22% translates to March 15th. There has been little progress in closing the gender wage gap over much of the last three decades. The gender gap did narrow between 1979 and 1994, but that's because men's wages dropped. Since then, the gap between men's and women's wages has narrowed hardly at all. Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for this information. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio.
0: Amazon warehouse workers walked off the night shift On Wednesday, in coordinated effort to demand better benefits.
6: Workers at three Amazon warehouses in the New York City and Washington, D.C. metro areas walked off the night shift Wednesday in a coordinated effort to demand $3 an hour raises and the reinstatement of 20-minute rest breaks. At a warehouse in Long Island City, Queens, five workers, the majority of the night shift, walked out of the warehouse at 4.30 a.m. after shutting off the conveyor belt. Outside, striking Amazon warehouse workers were joined by 26 workers from a neighboring warehouse in Woodside, Queens, who walked off the job earlier in the night at 2.45 a.m. According to a report by Lauren Kaori Gurley for Vice News, the organized workers stood together and chanted, quote, better pay, longer breaks, and, quote, Amazonians United will never be defeated. Striking workers say that their wages of roughly $15.75 to $17.25 an hour are not enough to survive with the year's rapidly inflated prices on the cost of housing, food, and gas. Additionally, Amazon announced it was cutting breaks from 20 to just 15 minutes, ending a COVID-era hazard benefit intended to give workers extra time to maintain social distancing and safety procedures. The multi-warehouse strike follows a petition drive in December organized by the same group of workers known as Amazonians United, an independent worker-led group, which has a presence in at least nine Amazon warehouses nationally. The December petition included a similar set of demands, and the strike on Wednesday, they say, is an escalation of that petition. At an Amazon warehouse in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which serves the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore metro area, 30 workers, which is more than half of the so-called megacycle shift that runs from 1 a.m. to noon, walked out of the warehouse at 6 a.m. on Wednesday. Quote, I make $16.90 after a year and a half of working here. End quote. Linda, an Amazon warehouse worker at the Maryland location who struck on Wednesday morning, told Kaori Gurley, saying that workers were demanding a raise for myriad reasons. Quote, first of all, we have a Nordstrom warehouse across the street that starts at $19 an hour, she explained in her interview with Vice. Quote, many of us work multiple jobs. People are hurting themselves on this job. Their bodies are breaking down. I have a coworker who hands out a leave every day. We got nothing during peak, but they doubled our volume in our warehouse. Maybe we could get a thank you, end quote. Information from this report was sourced from Lauren Kaori Gurley's report for Vice News. I'm Sean Hagerup, reporting for Madison Labor Radio.
1: How much does it cost to live in Dane County? The Economic Policy Institute gives us the answer.
8: Budgets are in everyone's mind, with the increasing price of gas and other necessities. How much does it actually cost to live in Dane County? The Economic Policy Institute has calculated the cost for a family to live at a modest yet adequate standard of living. In Dane County, for a family of four, two adults and two children, including some expenses for child care, the monthly total is $7,658 the yearly total is $91,895. For an individual, the monthly total is $3,264, which adds up to $39,164. There is no county in the United States where a single person earning minimum wage could earn enough to reach the $39,000 level. Here in Dane County, a single person would have to earn about $19.20 an hour working full-time to reach a modest but adequate standard of living. Just to put these numbers in perspective, according to Reuters, Amazon has raised its average starting wage to $18 per hour. Listeners can access the Economic Policy Family Budget Calculator by going to the EPI website at epi at epi.org. Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for the information in this newscast. I am Frank Hemsback from Madison Labor Radio.
0: And now, here is this week's COVID report.
5: For the two-week period ending Sunday, March 13th, cases stabilized with an average of 63 cases per day. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals decreased with an average of 42 people hospitalized each day. The percent positivity during this 14-day period was 3.2 percent. 63 percent of Dane County residents age 5 and up are up-to-date on their COVID vaccines, while 21 percent are fully vaccinated but not up-to-date. 12 percent are not vaccinated at all. Over the past four weeks, Cases decreased among all age groups except ages 8 to 11 and 80 and older, who had stable case trends. Children ages 8 to 11 currently have the highest case rate at 12.5 per 100,000 per day and the highest percent positivity at 5.1%. The prevalence of the BA2 Omicron subvariant has been increasing. CDC estimates BA.2 is now 23.1% of new cases in the U.S., up from 13.7% last week and 7.1% the week before that. BA.2 is far more transmissible than BA.1. The difference in transmissibility appears to be much smaller than the difference between BA.1 and the Delta variant. COVID-19 community levels are a new tool to help communities decide what prevention steps to take based on the latest data. Levels can be low, medium, or high and are determined by looking at hospital beds being used, hospital admissions, and the total number of new COVID-19 cases in the area. In Dane County, the community level is low, according to the Centers for Disease Control. The website vaccines.gov is the easiest way to find a vaccine near you. Each site has different hours, and the user must choose the vaccine. It is recommended that unvaccinated people choose either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Again, the website is vaccines.gov. Sources of information for today's story are the Centers for Disease Control and Public Health Madison and Dane County. This is Carol Weidel reporting for Labor Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jim Coonan. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach, Ellen Lalazern, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hangerup, Jeannie Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to our website editor, J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffens, our reader coordinator, and to all of our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective.
1: And I'm Ann Habel. We'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for Dave Watts and the Blues
11: Cruise.